0: All right, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn with me to John. Well, actually, well, let me see. I was thinking about going somewhere else to start. You can go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 8, verse 46. Father, we honor you here today. Thank you that already as we have, uh, we have lifted our, our voices and our hearts to you in song, congregationally, Lord, that you have been worshiped. And I pray now as we open Your Word and we study it together, You would continue to be worshiped. Pray that, Jesus, You would be magnified, that we would make much of You today in the Scriptures from our hearts, with our minds, and that You would help us, Lord, to understand these things, that You would open our hearts and our minds, that we would behold wonderful things from Your Word. Many different needs in this room today. And your word is more than sufficient to speak to every one of them. And so I pray, Lord, that you would challenge us, that you would teach us of yourself, that you would encourage us, that you would, you, Holy Spirit, would apply these truths to our lives individually as you see fit. So we honor you, Father, and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to do a little bit of a recap as we are concluding chapters 7 and 8. That's really one unit, one long unit that appears to be taking place at the Feast of Tabernacles. I've already spoken at length about what that is, but there are several feasts that they would hold in Israel each year, and this was one of the big ones. Every Jewish male had to attend. It was a seven-day feast, and they would look back to the time when God would dwell among His people in the wilderness, when they would uh, they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years and they lived in tents. So they would, at this feast, in remembrance of that time, build little tents to live in. And they would remember when God dwelt among His people. And there were a lot of symbolic things that happened there, a lot that really um, spoke of Christ. Of course, they didn't know that at the time. So Jesus told them as different things were going on at the, the feast there, Jesus would speak up and and almost compare himself. You know, they had the water ritual where they would pour out the water and he would say, all you who are thirsty come to me and drink and out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. And then they would have these light ceremonies at night where they would dance and sing. Uh, It was the the last night of the feast in particular and Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. If anyone follows me, they're going to have the light of light and they will not walk in darkness. So Jesus is essentially saying, these things speak of me. And we know that is the case for the scriptures from the old to the new testify of Christ. Well, some people in the crowd, there was a lot of confusion about who Jesus was, but some people seemed to respond with belief. They heard these marvelous words, and they believed. So it appeared. And then Jesus told them that if they were truly His disciples, that they would continue in His word. They would know the truth, and the truth would set them free. Isn't that glorious? Well, instead of responding with great joy and an eagerness to experience this freedom, they challenged his claim that he would set them free. They said that we are children of Abraham. We've never been in bondage, which is an amazing statement to make because they had been in bondage many times, and they were currently under the Roman occupation. Now, Abraham's an important character, and you need to know who he is biblically, especially for what we're looking at today today. He was the, really the father of the, Hebrew, the Hebrews. He was the first. Before the, the Jewish nation even existed, God went and called a man named Abram from the land of Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans. He was a pagan. You know, he was an idol worshiper. And God called him, set him apart, and gave him these wonderful promises that from him all the nations of the earth would be blessed from his seed. And so there would be the people, there would be the land, there were all of these glorious promises, and ultimately the promise of the Messiah who would come forth from Abraham. Well, Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God's promises, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So he, was, he went down in, in the books as a man of faith, a man who trusted God, took him at his word, and he was a tremendous example of faith. And so they regularly championed Abraham and their, their lineage Having come from Abraham. They said, however, we're not in bondage. And Jesus responded that if Abraham really was their father, then they would have done the same works that Abraham did. They would have believed just as Abraham believed. And yet they didn't believe. In fact, Jesus tells them, instead of believing, you have come to kill me, you've sought to kill me. Now that's pretty extreme. That's quite an extreme accusation for Jesus to make, but we know it's true, because ever since He healed someone on the Sabbath in chapter 5, they were conspiring to kill Him, and Jesus knew it. And so, instead of responding to Jesus' claims, they just respond with ad hominem. That's just personal attacks. Instead of responding to Jesus' position, they just attack his person, his character. They try to disqualify him. And so that's the context where we're at in our story today. We drop right back down into this heated exchange between Jesus and the Jewish, uh, the, the crowd there. And then we finish out the chapter today and this scene that we are in. So what's the point of all of this? What's the point of it all? Well, Jesus offers the people a wonderful gift. Jesus offers the people a wonderful gift that only He can give as one sent by God. Amen? But they reject the one sent by God and the gift that He came to give. They reject Him, and they reject His gift. They deny their need. They don't need a Savior. They don't need to be set free. They say, we aren't slaves, and we don't need to be set free from anything. And instead of receiving the gift, they just simply attempt to disqualify him as Savior altogether, and they accuse him of being a demon-possessed Samaritan, which we will get into that a little bit as we get into our study. So there's really three important questions here I would ask you. So if, if you have zoned out already, let's reel it back in, because this is important right here. Three questions. Do you believe that Jesus is who He says He is? Number one, do you believe that Jesus can do what He says He can do? Number three, do you believe that you need what Jesus offers to you? Those are three critical questions, and I think that's really at the core of what's happening in this exchange, and I will go back to that as we work our way through this message. Now, I want to go ahead and tell you where we're going before we get into the text, because there is... Some, uh, some, some information that we need to be clear on from the Old Testament. So, in this text today, this is one of the most definitive, clearest statements that Jesus makes concerning His divine nature, concerning His deity, concerning the fact that He is God in the flesh, that He is one with the Father. It's one of the most explicit statements in all of the Scriptures. I would say next to Mark chapter 2, where Jesus says that He can forgive sins. And he is connecting himself back to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush. Are we pretty familiar with that story? If you know anything about Moses, God's appointed Savior, the one who would go into Egypt and call the Israelites out of Egypt and he would do battle with Pharaoh, as it were. Um, That Moses, that story, we see in Exodus chapter 3. Where God calls Moses Moses is a shepherd in the wilderness for forty years, so he's out doing his duty and he sees a bush and it's on fire, but it's not being consumed by the fire it's a, it's a miracle it's a miracle that's happening. He sees it and he's curious as you would imagine and so he goes to inspect to investigate and we're told that the the angel of the Lord was in the bush it was the Lord, the Lord God and when Moses approaches the bush, he says, Take your, feet, uh, your shoes off your own holy ground. And he bows his face to the earth. And God, from that burning bush, commissions him to go into Egypt and to tell Pharaoh to let his people go, to let the Israelites go. Right? And so, of course, Moses immediately challenges his own abilities. He says, Look, I'm, I, I'm not a man of strong speech. I, I'm, you got the wrong guy. Let someone else do it. So they kind of have that back and forth. And then finally, he says he will go, but then he asks this really interesting question, who am I to tell them sent me? When they ask who sent you, who do I tell them sent me? And so this is how God responds to that. In Exodus chapter 13, it says, Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. So I am... I am. That is who Moses was to say sent him. Now this is a very fascinating name, it's a very fascinating phrase, and it's packed with all kinds of very deep and profound meaning. For God to be the I am, that's kind of like saying He's the uncaused cause. He's totally independent and self-sufficient. He is outside of everything, everybody. He doesn't need anything from anyone, amen? He doesn't need anything. Totally self sufficient within him and in and of him himself, his triune being. It speaks of God's eternality. He has always been and he will always be. His transcendence, he is outside of all things. His immutability, what he is, he has always been and he will always be. Our God never changes. Amen? Praise God for that. We live in a world that changes by the day, but our God does not change. He remains the same, yesterday, today, and forever, and He's our strong tower that we can depend on and run to and count on in the time of need. But there's also another interesting aspect to this, I am. I've almost, I've kind of heard it said like this, He is what we need. He is what we need. One commentator puts it like this, the name I am invites us to fill in the blank to meet our need. When we are in darkness... Jesus says, I am the light. When we are hungry, He says, I am the bread of life. When we are defenseless, He says, I am the good shepherd. And this, God's name is both an announcement and an introduction. It announces God's presence and invites any interested to know Him by experience and to taste and see that the Lord is good. He is all that we need. He is the giver of every good gift. And He invites us to taste and see that He is good and to experience the riches of His glory and grace. Amen? And so I've titled that, this message, Jesus Is. Jesus Is. Jesus connects Himself to this statement today. Jesus says to His opponents at the very end of this text today that before Abraham was, finish it, I am. Say that again. Before Abraham was? I am. That's what Jesus says. It could not be more clear what Jesus is saying. And his his opponents knew what he was saying because they picked up stones to kill him for it. And so, lest we be mistaken, it couldn't be more clear because his enemies knew what he was saying. So, with that, let's go ahead and look at our text. I have the world's longest introductions. I have a pastor friend that teases me all the time about that. He's like, bro, you got three introductions in your sermon. And uh, anyways, I can't help myself. All right, so as we enter into this text, there are really three things that I want to say that Jesus is. Three things I want to say that Jesus is. And so the first thing, Jesus is the sinless Savior. And I would attach to that, He is the source of something. So that's the way each one of these points will roll. So Jesus is the sinless Savior, and therefore He is the source of life. He is the source of life. Look at verse 46. Jesus says, "'Which of you convicts Me of sin? And if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe Me? He who is of God hears God's words.' Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Now, this is a shocking question that Jesus asks here. I don't know, we could easily pass over this. Who here convicts me of sin? Now, if I were to make such a bold statement or question right here, who here convicts me of sin? My wife right here could instantly raise her hand, (laughs) all right, without skipping a beat. Because none of us could ask this question with real sincerity and expect anything other than guilt, because we are all guilty of sin. We have all committed sins. We sin on a daily, maybe hourly basis, but we know that we fall so very short of God's glorious standard, we are sinners. But Jesus could say this, and what's amazing is He's not just talking to His enemies. He is in the presence of His closest associates. The disciples were with Him all the time, day and night, for three years, And so he's with his closest associates and his fiercest enemies, and Jesus could say, who here condemns me of sin? Who convicts me of sin? And nobody could really honestly raise any kind of a credible accusation against him, for he was sinless. So this being the case, Jesus says, why then do you not believe me? I haven't lied to you. I haven't sinned. I haven't done anything to make myself unworthy of your utmost and highest trust. Then why do you not believe me? And then Jesus basically tells them why they don't believe Him, because they can't. Jesus says that you cannot believe Me. He who is of God hears God's words, and you are not of God. That's what He says. Now, if you recall Pastor Dan's message last week, he talked about this concept of being children of God or children of the devil. And that's what Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. You're not of your father, Abraham. God's not your father, the devil is your father. And therefore, you cannot hear or receive the words of God the Father. And so, that's essentially what Jesus is appealing to here. Jesus is saying, there's no sin that you can convict me of, yet you still don't believe me, and the reason is, is because you can't believe me, because these are words from the Father, He's not your Father, your Father is the devil. So, I wanted to talk a little bit about that at this point. Because that's a real, that's a real problem. That's, that's a very serious, severe problem. If you are bound, if you are children of the devil, and the Bible says we all were that, that's kind of a, a radical, extreme statement. So, I just wanted to talk about that for a moment. Second Corinthians chapter 4, um, I'm doing my cross-references from the NLT here, and it, uh, it says this, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. So, there's a demonic, satanic blindness over those who do not know God. They can't believe. They don't see the gospel and understand it and its glorious implications. They reject it. Again, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul essentially kind of says the same thing. He says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. So, there is a this strong reality that we all, all of us in this room, and perhaps some of us here even today, were or are under this satanic blindness, uh, children of the devil, as it were. Now, I know that could be an offensive statement, Let's just be be real. You know, that's an offensive statement. Jesus often said offensive things. He didn't shy away from offensive things. And so, I just want to maybe hash that out a little bit. What does that mean? Well, the Bible speaks of the world. Maybe you've heard the statement, in the world but not of the world, right? And that's one of our great enemies as a Christian. We have the devil, the flesh, and the world system, and that's what it is. It's a, it's a corrupt system that is anti-God, anti-Christ, and everyone born into this world is of that world and a slave to it, and it's a it's, uh, it's corrupt system. Let me just read some quotes to us here. David Wells, one article I read speaking on this, he says that the world it's a, it's a system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and His truth from the world, and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. That's a good, that's a good explanation of it, you know? Uh, another, another guy says this, There's a stark contrast between two opposing options. We can love the world or we can love God, but we cannot love both. We can, afo- we can follow and obey the world, or we can follow and obey God, but we cannot serve two masters. The world, then, is not a place, but a system. It's a way of thinking and living that rejects God's rule. It is enthusiasm for the temporal and apathy for the eternal. It is living as if this world is all there is. To love the world is... Is to value what unbelievers value, to foster ungodly desires and attitudes, to indulge in what is delightful to those who refuse to delight in God. That's a lengthy uh, quote. I apologize for that. But the reality is, folks, that we were all part of this. And look, for me, this was never an offensive truth. You didn't have to convince me that that was me. You know, I mean, I just kind of knew that because of my life and the, the choices that I made and the lifestyle that I lived in for so many years growing up into a teenager, into a young adult, I knew that I was a rebel against God and that I had no desire to do His will or to walk in His ways. I knew that what, the way I was living was totally contrary to God, to Jesus, to the truth, and I was okay with that. In fact, I preferred it. I knew that I could not do both at the same time. Now this is the thing: not everybody who is of the devil, not everybody who is in the world, is as bad as they can possibly be. Doesn't mean that we're going around in seances and worshiping Satan. Doesn't mean that you're a hardcore bank robber or a you know full-blown drug addict or any of that stuff at all. It's simply being separated from God, outside of God, in this corrupt world system. That has no care or concern for the things of God whatsoever, that thinks good is bad and bad is good. You know, that's the world. And the Bible says that we were all born into that. And there's really only two places that you can be you are either in the light or in the dark, you're either a child of God or a child of Satan. As, as bad as that might sound, or weird even as that might sound, that's, that's the truth. That's the truth that Jesus came to bring. And that's why they could not receive His Word. Jesus was the sinless Savior who came as the very source of life, but He was rejected. He was rejected by the ones that He came to save. You can only receive and know God's truth if you are a child of God. And it's a gracious gift that God gives us when He rescues us and saves us and adopts us into His family and gives us the ability to believe and receive and to know God's truth, God's Word. Listen to this, John chapter 1, verse 10, speaking of Jesus, it said, He came into the very world He created, but the world did not recognize Him. He came to His own people, and even they rejected Him. But to all who believed Him and accepted Him, He gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Amen? That's the glorious news. That's the glorious news for us today. We were all in darkness. We were all in sin. We were all born into a God-hating, God-rejecting world But God, in His love and mercy, saved us out of that, called us out of darkness into light, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as the source of life. Well, verse 48, you know, they don't believe God, so they don't respond with belief, and so they respond by hurling insults at Jesus. Then the Jews answered and said to Him, "'Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon?' Now, the Jews have already tried to insult Jesus by referring to His conception. We know He was born of a virgin, right? But undoubtedly, there were some rumors spreading around about Mary, and you know it was, a, it was a miraculous conception, but it didn't look like that to a lot of people on the outside, so undoubtedly there were rumors going around that it was an adulterous situation. And they already said, look, we weren't born of fornication. And so it appears that they were attacking Jesus as one born out of wedlock. But then now they say he's a demon-possessed Samaritan. Now, that's not shocking to us. You know, So I can think of a lot worse things to say to somebody than that. Easily, right? We all could. A demon-possessed Samaritan, right? Uh, But that was about as bad as it could be at that point in time. You couldn't go lower than that. First off, to call someone a Samaritan, you know, the the Jews were taken out of their land at one point and taken captive to another land far away. But those who were left behind intermarried with some of those who had come in to conquer the land. And so they were they were intermixed, and so they were half Jewish, half Gentile. And when the Jews were allowed to come back to their land, now there's this new people here, the people known as the Samaritans, and they saw them as traitors as uh, not truly Jewish, and so there was this hostility right out the gate. And you may remember the story when uh, they came back into the land under Ezra, and they wanted to rebuild and rebuild the temple, and then Nehemiah wanted to rebuild the wall. Remember that? Well, the Samaritans tried to help, and I think it was Nehemiah refused their help. So, then that was like a slap in the face. So, now there was a real enmity there all the more. And this just continued on and on. And by the time we get to this point, there was just a very deep hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. And uh, they had different systems of worship. They had different places of worship. And, uh, you know, as far as the Jews were concerned, there was no greater contempt than for a Samaritan or to call somebody a Samaritan And so that's what they were trying to throw at Jesus. And then to say Jesus was demon-possessed is to, at the least, is to say He's just crazy. He's out of His mind. But at the worst, is to say that He is empowered by Satan and on mission for Satan. And so they really come hard at Jesus. And, you know, they see Jesus as a satanic Samaritan. They don't see Him as the sinless one. They don't see Him as a sinless Savior. And so Jesus answers in verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me, and I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Wow, what a statement. So Jesus rejects their accusation that he has a demon, that he's a Samaritan. He says, actually, I have come to honor my father, and you dishonor me for it. Jesus now says, if anyone keeps His word, they will never see death. That's amazing. That's an amazing statement. And we know that Jesus isn't talking about physical death, right? We understand that, don't we? Because the Bible is clear that it is appointed unto man once to die, then the judgment. Everybody in here, we're going to die one day, and we're going to stand before God in judgment. And we're either going to have to answer for the things that we have done here in this world against God our sin and transgression against Him, and our rejection of the gift that He gave us in Christ, or we're going to be rewarded for what we did for Christ here in this life. But everyone will die, and then comes the judgment. And that's what Jesus is talking about, eternal life, eternal death and eternal life. Jesus says that if anyone believes in Him, if anyone keeps His word, they will never see death. They will live forever in a glorified state with the Son. Amen? That's the precious gift. He's qualified to make it. He's the only one who's qualified to make a statement like that because He is the sinless Savior, heaven's darling, the Son of God, the only one truly qualified to stay in our place, to stand in our place as our representative, the innocent one, and then to die a sinner's death on our behalf that we might receive His righteousness. And for that reason, Jesus says in John chapter 5, "...most assuredly I say to you, he who hears My word and believes in Him who sent Me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life." Amen? "...have passed from death to life." John 10.10, Jesus says, "...the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy." And I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly." Jesus came to give life, abundant life, life eternal, but not just life eternally, life here and now. Life here and now as I consider the promises of Christ, the promises of God, the life that is mine in Christ Jesus that has been given to me by the only true source of life. There is no question, no question whatsoever that the life that I now live in Christ, it is life. I'm living, amen, living the dream. I remember before Christ, that was not life at all. That was death. That was destruction. That's all it was, nothing more, nothing less. Christ came to give life abundantly. He alone is qualified to do that, 2 Corinthians 5:21. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Amen. He's the sinless Savior. He's the only one who could say, who here convicts me of sin and stand innocent. He knew no sin, yet God made Him sin for us. God placed our sin on Him on that cursed tree. And He drank the cup of God's wrath and said, it is finished. And He died and He rose again from the grave, victorious. Amen. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the captives will be released, that the blind will see and that the oppressed will be set free. Amen? He came to set the captives free. He came to set the captives free. I'm one of them. He set me free. There are many in this room who can testify the same. You have been set free. Amen? we have been released. The blind have been given sight. The oppressed have been set free. That is the promise that is ours. If you see Jesus as the sinless Savior and the source of life, amen? That's great news. That's glorious news. So, as we move into the second part here, we're going to see that Jesus is greater than Abraham. Jesus is greater than Abraham. And I would say He's the source of faith. He's the source of faith. Verse 52, Then the Jews said to Him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets, and you say, If anyone keeps My word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets who are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Well, now they're fired up. They are excited. They think they got Him. They think they got Him. They have proven themselves correct in their accusation against Jesus. Clearly, you have a demon. They said, even Abraham is dead. The prophets are dead. And you're saying that if someone keeps your word, they're never going to die? Now, obviously, they don't understand what Jesus is saying, but then they say, who do you think you are? Jesus, you think you're greater than Abraham? You think you're better than Him? And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Jesus is greater than Abraham. Jesus is greater than all. He is the supreme, all-sufficient Savior. He has all the preeminence. God has exalted Him to the highest place and given Him a name above every name. He is the creator of all things. He is the source and the giver of life. Abraham bows in honor and reverence to the King Jesus. Well, Jesus says in verse 54, "'If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of who you say He is your God. Yet you have not known Him, but I know Him, and if I say I do not know Him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word.'" Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So, Jesus essentially says, look, I haven't come to honor myself. My father honors me. The very one that you claim to know, he honors me. Jesus says that I do know him, and I keep his word, and if I were to say otherwise, that would make me a liar like you. Man, that's, that was a good one. That was fast. Fast. I mean, Jesus came right back on him with that one. I'd be a liar like you if I said otherwise. Then Jesus says something incredibly fascinating. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, Abraham was about approximately 2,000 years before Jesus. And so Jesus makes this startling statement that Abraham saw him and was glad. And so there have been some suggestions as to what this could even mean. There are what we call appearances of Christ in the Old Testament, Christophanes, and uh, the angel of the Lord in particular. In Genesis 18, 1 through 3, Abraham is hosting the Lord and some other angels and having this exchange with them, and then Abraham intercedes on um, Sodom's behalf for Lot. Could be that that's what Jesus is referencing. There are several of those. Uh, I don't know if you know the, the character Melchizedek, I just can't get into all of this, but some people think Melchizedek is Christ, not so sure about that, but they, uh, they think that possibly Abraham's interaction with Melchizedek in Genesis 14 could be that. But at any, any rate, it's clear that what Jesus is saying here is that Abraham saw Jesus and expressed great joy and excitement. Abraham is subservient to Jesus. Jesus is greater than Abraham. Jesus didn't rejoice at seeing Abraham. Abraham rejoiced at seeing Jesus whenever, however that took place. Now, Abraham has gone down as the father of faith and an example to us in faith, as I've already said. And so, Jesus is greater than Abraham because he's not an example of faith. He is the object of our faith. Amen? Yeah. Jesus is the one in whom we place our trust. Jesus is the one in whom we exercise our faith towards. And so Jesus is the champion of our faith. It's because of Him that we can even have faith and be saved. If it weren't for the object of our faith, then faith in faith means nothing. You know, we hear that statement a lot, got to have faith faith and faith. Well, faith and faith means nothing. Faith in ourselves, that's even more disappointing. Faith in who? Faith in what? Faith in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says, let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion. I love that. The champion who initiates and perfects our faith. So he's the Lord. He's the one in whom we believe. He initiates this faith in us. He gifts us this faith, and He perfects this faith. He strengthens our faith. He builds our faith. So Jesus is more than just an example of faith. He's the author and perfecter of faith. He is the object of our faith. So there may be some in here today, you're exhausted, you're weary, you're tired. Maybe you've been trying to work yourself to God. Maybe you haven't been seeking God at all. Maybe you've just been out in the world doing your own thing, and you've you've had your fill of that. You've come to the end of yourself. And what you really need is rest in Jesus. That comes only through faith in Jesus Christ and in His promises. Jesus says to you, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, that's, that's, that's faith that some of us need in here today. Whether you've believed in Jesus and you're just tired because of life, or whatever it is you may be going through, or maybe you don't know Jesus at all, just know that faith in Jesus will bring us to a place of rest in Him. He has come to give us rest. We can lay our burdens upon Him and He will give us rest for our souls. That's important. That's important. Maybe some of us in here, maybe we've gotten far away from Jesus, far away and it's almost as if Jesus is on the outside and He's knocking. Revelation 3.20, Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. I love that. Jesus is there. Jesus is there as the source of faith. And He says, I, st- I, st- I stand ready. I stand ready to enter in and to have fellowship with you, to have friendship with you. I don't know where everybody's at in the room today, but I know that there are many here undoubtedly who are tired, who are weary, who need rest, who maybe have gotten far away from Jesus through sin and struggle and backsliddenness and hard-heartedness. Maybe you don't even know Jesus. You haven't trusted Him today. But He stands ready. He knocks at the door. Trust Him. Believe on Him. He is the author and perfecter of faith. He is the source and sustainer of faith. He's the champion of our faith. Amen? Amen. Praise God that Jesus is the source, the source of life and the source of faith. And then lastly, Jesus is the great I Am. Jesus is the great I Am. He is the source of every good gift. Amen? 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 Jesus is the source of every good gift. And if if we have Him, we have everything. If we don't have Him, we have nothing. Look at verse 57 with me. Then the Jews said to Him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at Him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Now, the Jews were all kinds of confused by what Jesus had said. That rhymed. That was not intentional, but it was good. They said, you're not even 50 years old. You're a young man. How can you make such a claim, such a statement? Jesus, and then Jesus replies, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham ever even existed, I am. That is as clear of a statement of deity as, as Jesus could possibly make. I am the eternally exist, existent one in His triunity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus existed as the second person, as the Son of God from all of eternity past. And Jesus could make such a statement, I was there with my Father and the Holy Spirit. Before Abraham even existed, I existed, I am, and I always will be. And as I said, they knew exactly what He was saying and they were ready to kill Him for it. Jesus was claiming to be one with the Father, again, as always. He was claiming to be Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord God. The, the, the covenant-making God, the God of the Jews. He had come to save His own people and was rejected by those that He came to save. And He said, I am. I am. That's amazing. This brings me back to the question, do you believe that Jesus is who He says He is? Do you believe that Jesus can do what He says He can do? Do you believe that you need what Jesus has for you? Amen. John 15, 8, But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want, and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples, and that brings great glory to my Father. You will be usable for God. You will be fruitful for God. If you believe that Jesus is who He says He is and that He can do what He says that He can do and that you need it. You can have eternal life in Christ and you can be usable for His glory. You can be a vessel fit for use by the King and you can have a truly fruitful life. Man, that's, there's nothing greater than that, to be used by God, to bear fruit. And I used to bear a lot of fruit before Christ. It was rotten, nasty fruit. It's fruit that I'm ashamed of now. You know? But in Christ, there is true fruit. Hey, man, there's nothing sweeter than that. I want that. I don't know about you. I need that in my life. I don't want to waste my life. Do you? I've wasted enough time. You know, I want to be used by God. I want to bear fruit. If you believe that Jesus is who He says He is and that He can do what He says He can do and that you need what He has for you, that can be you. 2 Peter 1, verse 2 says, May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. By His divine power, God has given us everything that we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know Him, the One who called us to Himself by means of His marvelous and uh, glorious excellence. And because of His glory and excellence, He has given us great and precious promises. Amen? We have great and precious promises, and there's one right here. If you believe Jesus is who He says He is, and He can do what He says He can do, and that you need what He has, you will have all things necessary for life and godliness through your knowledge and relationship with Him. Amen? I don't know about you. I need some of that in my life. I need a lot of that in my life. I need God's help. I need God's power. I need God's strength and God's wisdom and God's love and God's mercy and compassion. Amen and amen. And we have all things that are necessary for life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all that He has given me, that I should raise them up at the last day." Acceptance. You are accepted in the beloved, and you are kept by Him until that glorious day. That's a promise for us. If you believe that Jesus is who He says He is, and that He can do what He says that He came to do. And that you need what He has for you. then we have acceptance in Him. We belong to Him. When we come to Him, we will never be hungry. We will never thirst. Jesus does this because it's the Father's will. And He cannot do anything other than the Father's will. And He could certainly never violate the Father's will. And He says, this is the Father's will. That all that He has given Me, I would not lose one but raise it up on the last day. Amen? Amen. And so we have the promise of being kept forever in this life. I don't know about you, I need some of that. I need that in my life. If it were up to me to keep myself, I would have been long gone. If He doesn't keep me, I won't be kept. But I have not only the promise of acceptance through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, I have the promise of perseverance, the promise of endurance, the promise of security being kept until that glorious day when we stand before our Lord and King. You know why? Because this is the I Am. Because Jesus really can do what He said that He came to do. He really can save to the uttermost. And He really can fill us and strengthen us and equip us and use us and keep us no matter how discouraged, no matter how grieved, no matter how much doubt you may be struggling with right now, no matter How sick you may be, or whatever may be going on in your life, He's with you. You have the I am, the great I am. He is what you need. He'll never be anything less than that. He is what He is, and that never changes. Amen? Amen? Amen. amen. And we need Him. And I hope you have Him. I hope that you have Jesus. I hope that you have trusted Him for Christ. I hope that you have taken whatever trust that you may have had in yourself to get to heaven and have taken and thrown that away, and that You have turned and You have trusted in, You have fallen at the feet of the only One who is truly qualified to save You, Jesus Christ, and have said to Him, Jesus, I need You. I may not understand all of this right now, but I know that I need You, that I know that apart from You, I can't do anything and that without Your help I'll never make it, and that if I have to stand before God for my sins, I will most certainly be cast away, separated from Him for all of eternity to pay for my sins. But if you believe in Jesus today, if you call upon His name, repent of your sin, and trust Him for salvation, you will have eternal life, life eternal, born again, abundant life, in this life and the life to come. And that promise is extended to us today in this room, so believe, call upon His name while it's today trust Him. Amen? There is none more lovely, none more worthy of our trust than Him. Father, we love You. We honor You here today. Thank You that You are, Lord God, Creator of heaven and earth. Thank You that it pleased You to send Your one and only Son to come and to die for us, that we would be risen to the newness of life, that we would no longer be dead, we would no longer be lost in this world, we would no longer be children of Satan, but that we would be adopted into the family of God, children of the Most High God, followers of Jesus, lovers of the Lord. I pray that if there's anyone in here today who doesn't know you that way, that they would trust you this very moment, right where they sit, They would call upon you in the quietness of their heart. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the I Am. You are what we need you to be. You are the most suitable gift for our greatest need. Thank you that you are the greatest gift that came down from heaven. We praise you here today. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.